Hey everybody, what's new Andrew here, and welcome back to a new episode of the Let's Nintendo It podcast. This time, we're reviewing a game that, honestly, I still can't believe I'm reviewing right now. This game has been more than a decade in the making, and it's a game that, when I heard it on lists of cancelled and scrapped games, I certainly never thought it would see the light of day. Of course, I'm talking about Metroid Dread. Ever since it was announced at E3, there's been so much buzz about the game. It was such a pleasant surprise at Nintendo's E3 2021 presentation, and for myself, I think it was the game that stole not only Nintendo's actual Direct, but E3 as a whole. When I first saw this game, I was pretty excited for the fans mostly. Of course I thought that it looked like a really fun game in general, but over the months I was like, yeah, no I may give this a shot. And then I kind of realized why it was so important for Metroid Dread to sell, which, you know, I made an entire other podcast episode about that. And, man, Nintendo obviously knew that they had something going on here, because after Metroid Dread got announced that day, they would not stop talking about it until release. They spoiled this game silly. They had the Metroid Dread report, which just spoiled a lot of things that weren't even necessary. They had an overview trailer after the fact about a month later, but then they just would not stop putting out trailers for this game as well. And they spoiled everything, even all the areas of the game, which I can't think of a game that in their marketing just said these are all the areas in the game that you'll be exploring. It's kind of overkill, but at the same time I understand why Nintendo wanted to do it. They obviously knew they had something here. When the Nintendo Direct came for September, I found it extremely funny that it went from people saying, "Oh man, I hope Metroid shows up in some way, shape, or form. Give us something. And now they're saying, okay, Nintendo, we've had enough Metroid. Please, don't show it. You don't need to show it. We're fine. We get it. Metroid Dread's coming out. And then they still showed it in that Nintendo Direct, and I thought that was just so funny. As for myself, I tried my best to avoid all the spoilers that I can. I saw the E3 trailer, I saw that official actual trailer that they released about a month later, and that's it. I didn't see any of the Dread reports, I closed my eyes during that section in the Nintendo Direct because I wanted to keep my experience as fresh as possible. The main focus of this game that they were really trying to show off, the big new thing about this Metroid game, was a lot on these Emmy robots. Metroid games have always been about being alone and being a badass space ranger or super independent, now, they're implementing some horror aspects to it. There are these robots in specific sections that chase you, and you have to either hide or run, but if they catch you, you instantly get killed. It looked really enticing, and it just made me more excited about the game, because there is so much mystery leading up to what these robots are, because we found out they were originally sent by the Galactic Federation to help. The game released in early October, and I got my copy day one. This game has a lot of responsibility on its hands. It's supposed to relight the torch for this franchise that has a strong cult following, but in general isn't seen much by the public eye. And in order to really rekindle interest in this franchise, not only does it have to be a good Metroid game, it has to be a great Metroid game. But my goodness, I actually think they did it. I loved my experience with Metroid Dread. From beginning to end, it was just wonderful. Now, I do want to let you guys know that the game's been nearly out for a month. I'm gonna spoil a lot of aspects about it. 
I will try not to spoil parts of the game that I feel are too significant for myself to spoil, but in terms of general gameplay and abilities, I'm not going to leave a lot of stones unturned. The game starts out with Samus, soon after the events of Metroid Fusion. While she thought that she took care of the rest of the X-Parasites during the events of Metroid Fusion, the Galactic Federation quickly receives a transmission, where it shows these X-Parasites living on planet ZDR. It's up to her to go explore ZDR and find out what exactly is going on. Not long after she lands on the planet, though, she finds this Chozo, an alien race of birds who are thought to be extinct, who's wearing a power suit pretty similar to hers. She tries to beat it, but it's no use. It beats her nearly to death. But, for some reason, she still survives. She finds herself unconscious at the very bottom of the planet, while her gunship is at the very surface. So now it's up to her to travel through planet ZDR in order to find the way back to her ship. Samus, of course, finds herself at square one. It is a Metroid game, after all. But even compared to most other Metroid games, you'll notice a difference in her immediate capabilities. And that's largely due in part to the controls and Metroid Dread being absolutely fun, fantastic, and having a great sense of momentum. She starts out with a little dinky pea shooter, but now you can just use the joystick to free aim wherever you really want. You can do this while moving, and you can do this while holding still as well with a laser guide, so no matter what, you should be able to hit what you need to hit. The melee counter, from Metroid Samus Returns, was also retooled. A big issue I heard about that game, I haven't gone to it yet personally, is that first you had to stand still while using that move, but also it became really over-reliant. A lot of enemies were designed that countering was the best way to beat them, and you'd take a lot of damage if you didn't, so most of the time you'd be standing still and melee countering. But in Metroid Dread they fixed this not only by having a larger gap that you could actually counter the enemies, but now you could actually melee counter while moving. Which just makes the game move a lot faster. Another really unique aspect about this game compared to most other Nintendo games in general is that this game feels like it was made for a pro controller. Most of the time, when Nintendo's designing one of their games, they usually try to format the controls to fit with the lowest common denominator. In this case, it would be the sideways Joy-Con. For example, Super Mario Odyssey is a game I love to death, but one of my biggest complaints is the fact that they had to integrate motion controls in it. When it came to the Pro Controller and even the Joy-Con grip, they didn't have to do this. There were a lot of buttons in Super Mario Odyssey that had repeat functions that they could have mapped some of the special throwing techniques to. But, because that wouldn't work with the sideways Joy-Con that only had two triggers, they had to design Mario Odyssey around the fact that the Joy-Con was a viable playing option, and instead use motion controls for all those special throwing techniques. But Metroid Dread doesn't do that. It uses so many of the buttons on the controller, and they all have unique functions. There's no button mapping in this game, but I'd argue that it wouldn't really work. You can tell that they put a lot of effort into making all of the actions accessible just by using all the buttons on the one controller. I think it works very well. Everything felt like it was in such a natural place. Even though I did find myself mixing up a lot of the triggers, out of the ZL, ZR, and L and R buttons, 
all of them have a different function, and I will say, it did take me a while to get used to what trigger did what. But when the controls click, oh my gosh, they really click. One important aspect of my playthrough that I should note is that I used the Pro Controller throughout my entire playthrough. And I know it's really easy for your fingers to slip off the really thin triggers. Because of this, above all else, I highly recommend you have a Pro Controller for this game. You're gonna be using the triggers a lot. And I feel like if you use the Joy-Con grip, pressing the wrong trigger at the wrong time will likely cause a few unjust deaths. Even if I do have a few gripes with the controls, I'm very impressed at Mercury Steam for making a control scheme that fits all of Samus's many abilities, but you never have to switch what weapons you're using. Gone are the days of having to press select to scroll through your usable weapons, because Dread lets you use all of Samus's options at one time without ever feeling unnatural. Throughout Samus's time on ZDR, of course, she gets access to a lot of really cool abilities, most of them returning, such as the screw attack, the space jump, the speed booster, morph ball, morph bombs. There are quite a bit of new abilities as well. The phase shift is a dash. It's a dash you can do on the ground in midair, and you could do up to three directions from forward or backwards at a time. While I was exploring the world, I didn't really find myself using it much, but oh my gosh, for boss battles, it is such a lifesaver. It really helps you avoid a lot of attacks, even if you've never seen the attack from before, and you just realize one moment too late what they're going to do. The phase shift is so useful, and in general, it's really nice for getting over cliffs and jumps that require a running start or require the magnet beam, too. There's also the spider climb, which I thought was fine. It's a little slow for my taste, but it's still a decent way of getting around. The Magnet Beam is a beam that will let you latch onto the same walls that you could climb with the Spider Magnet that I mentioned earlier. I found it a little awkward to swing, let go of that momentum, and then connect onto the next point or the ceiling. I found myself missing a lot of the time and that got a little frustrating. Luckily you don't have to do that too many times during the game. The Space Jump has never been so easy to pull off. In Super Metroid I remember getting it and it was kind of a struggle. It took me a bit, but luckily it has a lot less strict timing and now you could just explore rooms to your heart's content. Probably my absolute favorite power-up though is the speed booster. There's no run button like there was in Super Metroid, and it's not like the Game Boy Advance games either where if you run long enough you'll eventually go into the speed boost. No, in a really genius move, when you run, you just have to click in the left stick and then you'll automatically start running for the speed boost. It felt really natural, and of course the technique of shine sparking returned, and it felt so satisfying, zipping at the speed of light in whatever direction you really wanted. It was great. Now one thing about the abilities that I do want to point out is that some upgrades felt a little redundant. Like for example, during the end of the game, you get this double jump, where it's like the space jump except you get two. But not too long afterwards, you get the proper space jump and you're able to do much more. I don't know if the developers just wanted you to practice the rhythm of doing space jumps, but it wasn't a lot of time in between getting the double jump and the space jump, so it felt kind of unnecessary. Same with the super missiles and the ice missiles you eventually get. There's not a lot of time in between both of those upgrades, so... It just felt a little redundant, like, why didn't we upgrade the missiles all at once? You get cross bombs near the end of the game as well, which are basically morph bombs, except 
they send an explosion in a cross pattern, which I'm not gonna lie, I didn't really find this power-up very useful except for a couple of puzzles and progression. It was not something I ever actually really used outside of the few times where you had to use it. Also, power bombs are in the last 15 minutes of the game, and yet there are so many upgrades for them throughout Planet ZDR, it just made me really confused and why didn't they introduce this earlier? There were so many times where I picked up power bomb upgrades and it said you can't use this yet and I'm like, oh boy, it's going to come soon. I'm going to have power bombs soon and I could solve a lot of these puzzles, but they just didn't come until the very, very end. And by that point, there was pretty much no reason to use power bombs in general. No matter my gripes with some of the power-ups, I feel like the game does a fantastic job of pacing when you get abilities. There never feels like a time where you just don't get any upgrades. They don't come too fast where it feels like they have no impact at all, but they come fast enough where whenever you get one you feel, Aw oh yeah, I'm a brand new Samus now, there's so many new areas now that I could explore. And you're going to need all the help that you could get when it comes to exploring Planet CDR. The planet is split up in about 7 or 8 sub-areas, where they each have their own theme. They are quite sizable, but they're never too big where it feels like backtracking is a pain. And the rooms always had interesting layouts when it came to platforms and enemies. Even when I have to backtrack through a room in order to get an upgrade that I previously couldn't, it still felt interesting and pretty fresh. I think the area that stood out to me the most is Gavorian. The lush jungle environment was a really nice contrast to the rest of the areas which had a mechanical or a lab feel to them. Also, I felt like this area in particular was very dense with enemies, which made things really fresh and always kept things interesting. Speaking of enemies, I love how much variety there are in the bad guys you have to beat up this time around. While not a lot of them really have a striking visual design, I do find that a lot of their attacks and a lot of their attack patterns are really unique from one another. They could shoot a laser beam across the screen, have a really powerful melee attack, come up to you and charge right into you, or shoot smaller projectiles across all different directions of the screen. In the aquatic area, Berenia, when I got out of one of the save points, I was not prepared at all for a monster to vomit its children out and have it attack me all at once. They all feel very purposefully placed. Never once throughout the game did I feel like there were too many enemies in the screen and it was unfair, but the attack patterns just complemented the room design very well and just gave me a good challenge. CDR is more than just a bunch of enemies, however. It also looks quite nice. The graphics in this game do look pretty good, though I will say I do kind of wish there was a little bit more color, but this is a mostly mechanical planet, so I do understand. And oh my goodness, the cutscenes, they really ace this part of the game. A lot of the game's more cinematic moments really shine because of the direction, and this is easily the most badass interpretation we've ever had of Samus. Just her mannerisms and actions, especially when facing up against bosses, is just so, so good. And without spoiling too much, there's voice acting. And when that one character spoke, I audibly gasped. And if you're a Metroid fan, you'll know exactly which moment I'm talking about. While I'm pleased with how the game looks, I can't say I'm the same way about the game's soundtrack. 
It's not bad or anything, it's just unremarkable. The game tries to go for atmosphere, but as a cause of that, there's not a lot of songs that I consider to be that memorable. It's not like Super Metroid, where the composer was just like, no, I'm going to do both, and then proceeded to make a soundtrack that was both an absolute bop and also eerie and atmospheric. I think one song that comes to mind is Burenia, the underwater section. I like that song quite a bit, and I thought it was pretty catchy, but... Yeah, unfortunately, other than that, there's not a lot of songs I can remember right now off the top of my head, which is a huge shame. Now that I mention it, there is one other theme that I remember. The theme for the Emmy Rooms. Emmys are killer robots that put the dread in Metroid Dread. Not in every single area in the game, but in most areas, there are these special doors where, when you go through them, you'll be put in a very ominous, almost black and white room covered in fog. There's no music, you mostly hear the sounds and beeps of the Emmy. They can hear you, and they can see you. So if you find one approaching you, you're gonna have to either run as fast as you can, or hide from it as best you can. But if it does see you, then it will pursue you. And it won't stop until it has you. It's not like it gets tired or anything. It is up to you to think fast and try to escape from the situation as fast as you can. And it's not like you could go out of the Emmy sections while the Emmy is chasing you, no, no. The Emmy exits seal up whenever the robot is directly pursuing you, so you're just gonna have to run as fast as you can, know your environment, and either find a way to outrun it or hide from it completely. Because if it catches you, you have one small, slim chance of survival if you could press the counter button at the right time, but if you don't, When I first heard about this feature back at E3, I thought it was a cool idea, but I thought there was some risk of it getting annoying. If you were dying so, so much repetitively, I thought that would be really draining to some people, including myself, who doesn't really have a ton of patience. But I think the game actually handles these Emmy sections very, very well, and they do it in a variety of techniques. First off, there's no Emmy section that's that big. Most of them are divided into chunks, and so if you do get a game over, you don't have that much ground to tread, and it won't take you too long to eventually just complete the room, whether you do try to hide and be tactical, or if you just rush through it and hope luck has your back. Secondly, every single time you go into an Emmy room, the game auto-saves. So if you get killed by an Emmy, you'll show up right in front of the door that you entered before making it so you can just try right again right after you get a game over. Also, not every single one of the areas has an Emmy. You're not going to have to be dealing with Emmy sections throughout the entire game. In fact, there's a chunk throughout the game where you don't have to deal with one for quite a while. This pacing kept the concept from getting stale, repetitious, and boring. Another aspect I really liked about the Emmys is that not all of them were the same. Instead, they were all themed around abilities that Samus gets, just like the bosses in Metroid Fusion. There's one that's based off the Morph Ball that could go under single tile gaps, there's one where you get the speed booster from it and it's just lightning fast and covered in electricity, and there's even one that's based off the ice missiles, 
where when you get into its field of vision, it will automatically freeze you, which is really terrifying, but also makes these encounters really unique. I also had a lot of fun trying to predict what colors would the next Emmy be, what abilities would they have, and what ability would they give me. While Emmy are a big focus of the game, there are of course also normal bosses, and they're fantastic. You fight a good mix of giant abominations, and also smaller enemies, which are just as quick and nimble as Samus and feel like you're fighting on equal grounds. Bosses' attacks may be telegraphed, but that doesn't mean they're easy to avoid. They do a lot of damage and you're gonna have to have some quick reflexes if you want to react to the boss's attack patterns. And unlike the enemies, they may not have the most striking visual design, but most of them make up for it for how fun they are. And let me tell you, there is nothing more fun than successfully parrying the boss's attack. Just like regular enemies, there are certain attacks that you can actually parry with the right timing. And when you do, you activate a cutscene where the game shows you that Samus is one experienced bounty hunter. She gets up close and personal to these bosses, grappling their faces and just pumping their faces full of missiles. It's really cathartic because while this cutscene's happening, you have to match the attack button in order to do any damage, but my goodness, it is just so much fun and so satisfying to pull it off. While I love the final boss of the game, my absolute favorite boss, however, is Experiment Z52, which you fight near the end of the game. I just love its attack telegraphs, I love how much you have to use all your abilities, you're really gonna have to use your storm missiles, your full 360 degree aiming, your phase shift, your space jump, and even your speed booster if you want to efficiently and effectively kill this terrifying beast. Best part is, it has one of those moves where you can parry it, and when you do, you enter a cutscene where Samus just clings onto its face, you just pump it full of missiles, and it, you can see this beast writhing and wriggling trying to get Samus off. It even climbs up the building near it, and yet during the entire time, Samus never stops blasting its face full of missiles, just tearing it a new one. It is so wonderful, and I got so excited the first time I pulled that parry off. Okay, that's kind of a lie. I got excited the second and third time too. These sections are just so much fun. Even if you do just hold the R trigger and you just mash that Y button, it still was just such a great feeling because you do so much damage and you know that boss feels it. I do have some gripes with the bosses, specifically the boss variety. You fight the same few mini bosses over and over again. And while it's not a terrible fight or not an unfun one, it's still fun. You just repeat what is virtually the same boss fight multiple times throughout the game, and it lost its luster by the end, I must admit. And if there is one boss that I could call my least favorite, it's definitely SQ, the Electric Bee. I really thought it was annoying fighting this thing. It turned invincible so often that it didn't really feel like it was a testament of skill, it was just a testament of endurance because there were just so many times where it would just turn invincible and then you'd just have to wait. It also had this multi-bullet attack that's based off the storm missiles, and that felt really, really hard to dodge. But hey, other than that, I had a lot of fun dodging, shooting, and of course, dying to the bosses. And if you want to play Metroid Dread, well, you better be prepared to die a lot. Because this game is hard. Okay. It's one of the harder first-party Nintendo titles that they've released since Breath of the Wild, probably. Whether you don't successfully dodge enemy attacks, bosses just overwhelm you, 
or you get killed by the Emmy over and over and over again. There are a lot of opportunities for you to get a game over in this game. However, it never really stings that much. I never really felt the game was being unfair, and I always felt like whenever I died, there was at least something I could have done better. The game is really generous when it comes to giving you health refills, ammo refills, or both, as well as save points. Combine that with the fact that whenever you enter an Emmy zone, the game auto-saves, dying never felt that inconvenient. If you get this game, just know, it's normal to die. I personally died in the tutorial for how to deal with the Emmy, and I know for a fact I'm not the only person who's done that. You grow and get better as a player for every single death you have. So if you do find yourself to be discouraged, remember that it's not your skills as a player, it's just a naturally hard game. And not dying in this game is not a testament to you being good at all video games. As I was going through the main story of the game, I found myself thinking that this is a pretty linear Metroid game. There were quite a few times where I found myself blocked in to only going through one path, and having to complete a certain story objective before I was actually able to explore and backtrack through all the different areas. If you're the type of person who's paranoid about picking up this game because you're afraid you'll get lost and you won't know where you're able to go, I'm happy to say that I think the game does a really good job of always subtly indicating where you have to go. Anytime you get an upgrade, I found that there was always a new passageway that opened up near you because of the ability that you just got, and that kept me from really getting lost and I never felt like there was no indication on where to go. I originally wrote this game off as really linear, and I was kind of sad about that because I knew a big complaint about Metroid Samus Returns for the 3DS is that it was way too linear, and while this game got a ton of aspects right, I know that speedrunning Metroid games is a huge appeal of this series. That all changed one day when I looked around the map and I noticed that there was a Morph Ball cannon within Kraid's fight. In Kraid's arena, I mean. And I was like, oh, okay, I probably missed an upgrade there. I used it, it did absolutely nothing, and I was just left wondering, what was the point of that even? Because normally, if you play the game, you're not able to have Morph Ball Bombs at that section. So I searched around that area for a while, seeing what the heck is the point of that, and then I eventually caved and just searched it up. And to my utter bewilderment, the fellas at Mercury Steam designed it so you can sequence break the game, get the Morph Ball Bombs early, and design the boss around that if you have this upgrade that you're not supposed to normally have, you can use that cannon while in the fight with Kraid, and it lets you perform a move that instantly kills Kraid. So not only did Mercury Steam know that people really liked sequence breaking and speedrunning in Metroid games, and designed the game around the fact that these exploits are possible, but they even designed a boss around that too. And that is just the coolest thing. There are a ton of sequence breaks and speedrunning tactics you can do with this game, they're just not very obvious. And I applaud the developers for being able to implement that. As I'm recording, which keep in mind the game has been out for less than a month, players have already managed to beat Metroid Dread Story Mode in less than an hour and a half. Which is insane, and just shows how much Mercury Steam knows Metroid. For my playtime, I took about 16 hours, but I did get every single item in the game. And let me tell you, it was a really fun challenge. There are several optional upgrades that Samus can collect that are usually hidden within secluded rooms, through puzzles, 
or through invisible blocks within the wall that you have to break with a certain weapon, such as a morph bomb or a missile. These include missile tanks that add 2 to your missile capacity, missile tank pluses that add 10 to your missile capacity, E-tanks, which give you an additional 100 health points, as well as energy tank parts, where they're similar to heart containers from Zelda. If you collect four of them, it makes another energy tank, which gives you another additional 100 health. And finally, there are power bomb tanks, which add an additional one capacity to how many power bombs you can carry. If you feel like you have to collect every single item in order to be thoroughly powered from every challenge you have ahead, honestly don't. When it comes to missiles, I always had way too many missiles than to know what to do with. I never was in any threat of running out of missiles. Missile drops from enemies were pretty common, and when it came to fighting bosses, I always found myself having a large excess of missiles, even after beating them, only using missiles. Powerbomb upgrades are also incredibly useless. You get them within the last 30 minutes of the game, and there's never a point where you need more than two or one, really. By the time you get power bombs, there's really no other challenge in the game except for the final boss, and power bombs don't help against the final boss from what I know. However, there is one aspect of getting 100% that is difficult, and that's the Shine Spark puzzles. I explained this briefly before in the video, but in the game you get an item called the Speed Booster, where if you're running and you click down the left stick, you'll constantly start to build up speed. When you build up that top speed, Samus will turn purple and, obviously, run very fast. If you duck in this state, you'll charge that speed. Samus will glow and have sparks all around her. All you have to do is press B in one of the eight cardinal directions, and Samus will go flying in that direction. There are a ton of puzzles that require the speed boost and shine spark in order to get items, and they are by far the most difficult items to get. Mostly because it's almost like a puzzle when it comes to how to actually shine spark in that general area. You see, there's a lot of limitations when it comes to the speed booster and shine spark in general. While you're building up speed, you can't jump, you can't go down a ledge, you can't slide, you can't do anything. You have to wait for that speed booster to activate. But when it does activate, you're able to jump, wall jump, and slide while keeping that momentum, and still able to press down to charge a shine spark. The shine spark only lasts for a short bit of time. It'll eventually wear off, and you're gonna have to do the running all over again. And sometimes, there's a good amount of space between the area you can run in, and the area with the shine spark blocks that you have to break. So it's all about being being able to maintain and keep that speed and momentum you have while running, while being able to charge your Shine Spark in a close and convenient enough area to actually perform it in before the technique's timer runs out. Got that? I knew you would. Now, unfortunately, I feel like a part of the difficulty is that the game doesn't do a good job explaining everything about the Shine Spark. I will admit, I searched up a lot of the puzzles online, and there was just a lot of things I had to use that the game didn't teach me and I didn't know even existed, or that was how it worked. But if you do want to solve the Shine Spark puzzles, here's some piece of advice that I found. If you Shine Spark straight into a slope, you'll start running again and you'll be able to charge a new Shine Spark. Additionally, if you want a Shine Spark in the air, you can. While you have the Shine Sparks charge, perform a spin jump, and then press B and then Y right after that in midair. Hold the direction you want to go in, and you'll Shine Spark in that direction. The game never tells you these tips. Which is weird, because if you want to get 100%, it's pretty essential that you know how to use the Shine Spark in these ways. I personally searched up how to do them, but I don't really have a lot of shame in saying that. 
because even if you see it, performing these actions is much harder than it looks online. While 100%ing Metroid Dread, I found that actually getting the items was much harder than finding them. And that's because the game implements several features that will ensure you will know if you miss something. As long as you explore the map, if you missed an item upgrade you could get, there will be a flashing white box on that particular area of the map where you missed something. Additionally, later in the game, you'll get the scanner upgrade, which will show you the location of all breakable blocks in an area, and this just makes finding whatever upgrades you can very, very easy. If I had one minor complaint about getting 100% in Metroid Dread, I found that some of the hardest puzzles in the game gave you some really mediocre rewards. Some of the hardest Shine Spark puzzles in the game give you a normal missile tank, even though it definitely feels like a E-tank or a party tank even would have been much more appropriate. Other than that, while I did have to search up how to do the Shine Spark puzzles, I never had to search up where a specific item was. So if you want to get 100% but you're afraid that you're going to be wandering around the same area trying to find just where that last missile pack is, don't be. The map clearly indicates where you missed an item, and later in the game you get a scanner upgrade which takes all the challenge of locating an item out. While I wouldn't call Metroid Dread a story-driven game, I still would say that there's quite a bit more story in it than most Metroid games. And overall, I think it's pretty good. I don't think it's a mind-blowing conclusion to this arc of Metroid apparently, but it still gets the job done. One thing I find odd is the way the game does tell you the story. There are times where it shows it in its visuals. I'm going to spoil a pivotal plot moment in the game. When Samus discovers the X-Parasites on Planet ZDR and releases them, it was so cool seeing the X-Parasites turn into the enemies, symbolizing that the X-Parasites have already gone all over the planet and are now mimicking the bodies of the enemies. It really shows you how dangerous the X-Parasites really are as a threat to the whole galaxy. Another bit of visual storytelling I really like is the Emmy introductions. Whenever you meet a new Emmy, you usually see a cutscene and it visually shows you what abilities they have. You could see the green one now going under narrow passageways. You could see the yellow one running super fast. My favorite is when you see the blue one freeze an enemy that's in front of it and then shatter it when it's like, oh no, that's what I have to deal with. It fills you with a uh, sense of uh, dread. And on the other side, Adam, the computer, is a returning character and there's a lot of exposition that he just flat out tells you. That moment with the ex-parasites I mentioned, you go to a computer room right after that and then he basically says, oh yeah, by the way, the ex have infested the entire planet now, as if, you know, we didn't already just see that. I just want to cover this topic because Metroid as a franchise is really, really good at visual storytelling. And I guess I just wanted to say my opinion on whether I think Metroid Dread still follows that tradition or not. And of course, I thought the ending was awesome as well. While Experiment Z52 was my favorite boss fight, Ravenbeak was easily my second favorite boss fight. This Chozo has a power suit of his own, and he's not afraid to use all the abilities that you have also been collecting throughout the entire game. It's awesome seeing Samus' attacks being used against her, except they're much more powerful. It's a super thrilling, engaging, and very tense boss fight. I somehow managed to do it on my second try with 34 health points remaining. I don't know how I got that lucky, 
at that point, I was pretty much just accepting death and saying, it's okay, I'll do it another try, but I somehow won. And of course, the actual ending is really insane. Samus becomes a Metroid, essentially. Complete with a beastly new suit and a hyper beam that's straight out of Pokemon. Except no recharge time on this. I don't really know what Samus becoming a Metroid will do to impact the series as a whole, but honestly the way I see it is that now they could call the games Metroid, but at the same time, the game's story does not have to have any Metroids in it whatsoever because Samus is a Metroid. If that's what they were going for, I think this is a really genius ending. However, one thing, and I've heard this complaint quite a bit, why did Quiet Robe turn Samus back from her Metroid form into her normal form? That wasn't actually Quiet Rope, that was an X mimicking him, and X are supposed to be neutralized by Metroids. That made no sense to me whatsoever, and the game didn't really do a good job of explaining it at all, so I just was a little weirded out by that. Either way, Samus escapes the self-destructing planet because you can't have a Metroid game without self-destructing planets, and while the entirety of Planet ZDR blows up, Samus escapes successfully. And with, like, the third or fourth planet she's destroyed? That's Metroid Dread. Overall, absolutely wonderful game. I had a great time with it from beginning to end. I love the level of challenge that's present in the game, the controls are smooth, flowing, and while a little bit hard to grasp at the beginning, become really fun once you get to know them. I absolutely adore enemies and bosses. Enemy sections are super challenging, but because they autosave every time you enter one, and the sections aren't one after another and they're well-paced, they always remain really fun. And I'm really happy to see that a lot of the suggestions and hopes that I made in my previous podcast episode came to fruition in this game. It's accessible, but also really difficult for longtime fans. And if you're thinking about playing this game, but you've never played a Metroid game before, I think this is a great place to start. I'm not alone in that thought either, because ever since Metroid Dread is released, there have been so many people talking about this game, and it makes me so happy. I actually think Mercury Steam pulled it off. I think this will be the best-selling Metroid game. However, there's still the matter of Japan. I'm really, really curious to see how this game will do. I'm nearly certain that this game will become the best-selling Metroid game, but I'm still wondering if it will win the attention of the Japanese audience as well, and despite the fact the genre is not the cultural norm, the fun gameplay will be enough to get that audience's attention. Now, Metroid Dread is easily one of the best games in the entire franchise, but I can't really say that it's definitively the best. Mostly because, I don't think it has everything that a Metroid fan would look for in a Metroid game. Super Metroid is known by many people as the best game in the entire series. And when I was a kid, one of the biggest compliments that I heard about Super Metroid is that it's a game that does not talk down to its audience whatsoever. It fully trusts the audience that they will not get lost and lets them explore the world however they please whenever they can. Metroid Dread simply doesn't do that. There are multiple instances throughout the game where the game won't let you backtrack. A lot of the world design in this game prefers that you go forward instead of explore what you've already gone through, simply because it feels like the developers don't trust the player to explore too much without getting lost and losing sight of where to go forward. In Super Metroid, of course, you can't go everywhere at first, you need to get the appropriate power-ups, 
but the game gives you little to no indication of where you need to go once you get a power-up. You can get an upgrade in the fourth area, and where you actually need to go is all the way back in the first area in order to progress the story, but the game doesn't tell you that because it doesn't want to tell you that. It wants you to explore and find everything. And I get why that's super thrilling for a lot of players. Game Maker's Toolkit did a fantastic analysis of the world design of Metroid Dread, and I highly recommend you watch it if you don't understand what I'm trying to say. But because of these points, I understand if Metroid Dread was disappointing to some Metroid fans who really love world exploration above all else. But I can't say that this structure is inherently worse than Super Metroid. Some people prefer finding everything for themselves like in Super Metroid, and some people like the fusion formula, where the game literally points you where you need to go. As for myself, I played Super before, but I got lost. I had to stop because I couldn't find my way around the game. And I didn't really feel like looking up online because every single person who's played Super Metroid that I know has said don't use a map. So for me personally, I really like the structure of Dread. During the times where I can explore, I always found it obvious enough where I actually need to go to progress the story, so I marked that on my map, and I explored everywhere else. While I can't say this is the objectively best Metroid game, I still think that's very subjective, I think it would be crazy not to say that this is one of the absolute best games in the franchise so far. And I can't wait to see Metroid 6. When they do make a Metroid 6, I hope it focuses on the Galactic Federation trying to hunt down Samus. I feel like that's the most natural place for the story to go, considering how much Samus has done to them. Which they absolutely deserve it, but I just want to see Samus take down the Federation by herself. That would be awesome. And with that, that's all I really want to say about Metroid Dread. It is easily one of the absolute best games in the series, and I highly, highly recommend it. Okay, now that's all I want to say about Metroid Dread. If you like this episode, please consider following my podcast and following me on Twitter at WhatPodcasts. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it as per usual. This has been What's New, Andrew, and that's What's New. See you next mission in less than 19 years, hopefully. Hopefully.